I picked up the special time edition titled The Science of Addiction because after more than a year of spending every single night at home, I've developed a pretty firm habit that is looking uncomfortably like an addiction. Early in the pandemic days, I would pour a glass of wine while cooking dinner, and then another when sitting down to turn on the TV. And when the weather allowed gathering with a couple of people outdoors for a happy hour that turned into a glass with the friends, followed by a glass while cooking dinner, followed by a glass while sitting down to stare at a screen. You get the picture. So I started unwinding these habits by bringing hot tea to the happy hours, which was admittedly pretty easy to do in January. Then I unwound the habit from my cooking routine, which took a little effort and mindfulness. I'm not sure if I want to give up my end-of-the-day TV glass, but I am interested to find out what the science of addiction has to tell me about my wine drinking and about what scientists know, what they are learning, and what they don't know about addiction. So we will jump right in and most likely we'll also read from this rather large special edition in the future, but this is sort of the main article introducing this edition and is written by Michael D. Lemonick. I was driving up the Massachusetts Turnpike one evening many years ago when I knocked over a bottle of water. I grabbed for it, swerved inadvertently, and a few seconds later found myself blinking into the flashlight beam of a state trooper. How much have you had to drink tonight, sir? he demanded. Before I could help myself, I blurted out an answer that was surely a new one to him. I haven't had a drink, I said indignantly, since 1981. It was both perfectly true and very pertinent to the trip I was making. By the time I reached my late 20s, I'd poured down as much alcohol as normal people consume in a lifetime, and plenty of drugs, mostly pot as well. I was, by any reasonable measure, an active alcoholic. Fortunately, with a lot of help, I was able to stop, and now I was on my way to McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts to have my brain scanned in a functional magnetic resonance imager, fMRI. The idea was to see what the inside of my head looked like after more than a quarter century on the wagon. Back when I stopped drinking, such an experiment would have been unimaginable. At the time, the medical establishment had come to accept the idea that alcoholism was a disease rather than a moral failing. The American Medical Association, AMA, had said so in 1956. But while it had all the hallmarks of other diseases, including specific symptoms and a predictable course, leading to disability or even death, alcoholism was different. Its physical basis was a complete mystery, and since nobody forced alcoholics to drink, it was still seen, no matter what the AMA said, as somehow voluntary. Treatment consisted mostly of talk therapy, maybe some vitamins, and usually a strong recommendation to join Alcoholics Anonymous. Although it's a totally non-professional organization founded in 1935 by an ex-drunk and an active drinker, AA has managed to get millions of people off the bottle using group support and a program of accumulated folk wisdom. Although AA is astonishingly effective for some people, it doesn't work for everyone. 
and the program's success is hotly debated. However, a 2020 Cochrane review determined a 42% success rate, which was much higher than previously thought. Insurers and policymakers often rely on Cochrane reviews, which are considered the gold standard for evaluating health research. Other forms of treatment, including various types of behavioral therapy, don't do that well. The rate is no better with drug addiction, which experts see as the same disorder triggered by a different chemical. The sad part is that if you look at where addiction treatment was years ago, it hasn't gotten much better, says Martin Paulus, a former professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego, and now president of the Laureate Institute for Brain Research in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You have a better chance to do well after many types of cancer than you have of recovering from methamphetamine dependence. That could change. In recent years, researchers have made extraordinary progress in understanding the physical basis of addiction. They know now, for example, that success rates can shoot up to 60% if treatment is ongoing very much the AA model, which is most effective when members continue to attend meetings long after their last drink. Armed with an array of increasingly sophisticated technology, including fMRIs and PET scans, investigators have begun to figure out exactly what goes wrong in the brain of an addict, which neurotransmitting chemicals are out of balance, and what regions of the brain are affected. They are developing a more detailed understanding of how deeply and completely addiction can affect the brain by hijacking memory-making processes and by exploiting emotions. Using that knowledge, they've begun to design new drugs that could cut off the craving that drives an addict irresistibly toward relapse, the greatest risk facing even the most dedicated abstainer. Addiction is defined as a chronic relapsing behavior in the face of negative consequences. The overwhelming urge to continue something you know is bad for you. It is such a harmful behavior, in fact, that evolution should have long ago weeded addiction out of the population. If it's hard to drive safely under the influence, imagine trying to run from a saber-toothed tiger or catch a squirrel for lunch. And yet, points out Nora Volkow, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, at the National Institutes of Health, and a pioneer in the use of imaging to understand addiction, the use of drugs has been recorded since the beginning of civilization. Humans, in my view, will always want to experiment with things to make them feel good. That's because drugs of abuse co-opt the very brain functions that allowed our distant ancestors to survive in a hostile world. Our minds are programmed to pay extra attention to what neurologists call salience, that is, special relevance. Threats, for example, are highly salient, which is why we instinctively try to get away from them. But... So are food and sex, because they help the individual and the species survive. Drugs of abuse capitalize on this ready-made programming. When exposed to drugs, our memory systems, reward circuits, decision-making skills, and conditioning kick in. Salience in overdrive, to create an all-consuming pattern of uncontrollable craving. Some people have a genetic predisposition to addiction, says Volkow, 
but because it involves these basic brain functions, everyone will become an addicted person if sufficiently exposed to drugs or alcohol. That can go for non-chemical addictions as well. Behaviors, from gambling to shopping to sex, may start out as habits, but slide into compulsions. Sometimes there might be a behavior-specific root of the problem. Volkow's research group, for example, has shown that pathologically obese people who are compulsive eaters exhibit hyperactivity in the areas of the brain that process food stimuli, including the mouth, lips, and tongue. For them, activating these regions is like opening the floodgates to the pleasure center. Almost anything deeply enjoyable has the potential to become addictive, though. Of course, not everyone becomes addicted. That's because we have other, more analytical regions that can evaluate consequences and override mere pleasure-seeking. Brain imaging is showing exactly how that happens. Paulus, for example, looked at people addicted to methamphetamine who were enrolled in a VA hospital's intensive four-week rehabilitation program. Those who were more likely to relapse in the first year after completing the program were also less able to complete tasks involving cognitive skills and less able to adjust to new rules quickly. This suggested that those patients might also be less adept at using analytical areas of the brain while performing decision-making tasks. Sure enough, brain scans showed that there were reduced levels of activation in the prefrontal cortex where rational thought can override impulsive behavior. It's impossible to say if the drugs might have damaged these abilities in the relapsers, an effect rather than a cause of the chemical abuse, but the fact that the cognitive deficit existed in only some of the meth users suggests that there was something innate that was unique to them. To his surprise, Paulus found that 80% to 90% of the time he could accurately predict who would relapse within a year simply by examining the scans. Another area of focus for researchers involves the brain's reward system, powered largely by the neurotransmitter dopamine. Investigators are looking specifically at the family of dopamine receptors that populate nerve cells and bind to the compound. The hope is that if you can dampen the effect of the brain chemical that carries the pleasurable signal, you can loosen the drug's hold. One particular group of dopamine receptors, for example called D3, seems to multiply in the presence of cocaine, methamphetamine, and nicotine, making it possible for more of the drug to enter and activate nerve cells. Receptor density is thought to be an amplifier, says Frank Vachi, formerly with NIDA and now president of the Friends Research Institute in Baltimore. Chemically blocking D3 interrupts an awful lot of the drug's effects. It is probably the hottest target in modulating the reward system. But just as there are two ways to stop a speeding car, by easing off the gas or hitting the brake pedal, there are two different possibilities for muting addiction. If dopamine receptors are the gas, the brain's own inhibitory systems act as the brakes. In people with addictions, this natural damping circuit called GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid, appears to be faulty. Without a proper chemical check on excitatory messages set off by drugs, the brain never appreciates that it's been satiated. As it turns out, Vigabatrin, 
an anti-epilepsy treatment is as effect is an effective GABA booster. In epileptics, vigabatrin suppresses overactivated motor neurons that cause muscles to contract and go into spasm. In animals, vigabatrin prevents the breakdown of GABA so that more of the inhibitory compound can be stored in whole form in nerve cells. That way, more of it can be released when those cells are activated by a hit from a drug. Biotech companies in the U.S. have been researching the drug's effect on cocaine and alcohol use in the hopes that enhancing GABA in the brains of addicted persons would help control their cravings. Preclinical evidence suggests the drug may be effective in reducing cocaine and alcohol intake. Another fundamental target for addiction treatments is the stress network. Animal studies show that stress can increase the desire for drugs. In rats trained to self-administer a substance, stressors such as a new environment, an unfamiliar cage mate, or a change in routine lead to more substance use. Among higher creatures like us, stress can also alter the way the brain thinks, particularly the way it contemplates the consequences of actions. Recall the last time you found yourself in a stressful situation, when you were scared, nervous, or threatened. Your brain tuned out everything besides whatever it was that was frightening you, the familiar fight-or-flight mode. The part of the prefrontal cortex that is involved in deliberative cognition is shut down by stress, says Voci. It's supposed to be, but it's even more inhibited in chronic substance users. A less responsive prefrontal cortex sets up people with addictions to be more impulsive as well. Sex hormones may also play a role in how people become addicted. Studies have shown, for instance, that women may be more vulnerable to cravings for nicotine during the latter part of the menstrual cycle, when the hormones progesterone and estrogen are released. The reward systems of the brain have different sensitivities at different points in the cycle, notes Volkow. There is way greater craving during the later phase. That led researchers to wonder about other biological differences in the way men and women become addicted and significantly respond to treatments. Alcohol dependence is one very promising area. For years, researchers had documented the way female alcoholics tend to progress more rapidly to alcoholism than men do. This telescoping effect, they now know, has a lot to do with the way women metabolize alcohol. Females produce less alcohol dehydrogenase, the first enzyme in the stomach lining that starts to break down the ethanol in liquor, and less total body water than men. Together with estrogen, these factors have a net concentrating effect on the alcohol in the blood, giving women a more intense hit with each drink. The pleasure from that extreme high may be enough for some women to feel satisfied and therefore drink less. For others, the intense intoxication is so enjoyable that they try to duplicate the experience over and over. But it's the brain, not the gut, that continues to get most of the attention, and one of the biggest reasons is technology. It was in 1985 that Volkow first began using PET scans to record trademark characteristics in the brains and nerve cells of chronic drug users, including blood flow, dopamine levels, and glucose metabolism, a measure of how much energy is being used and where. 
and therefore a stand-in for figuring out which cells are at work. After the subjects had been abstinent a year, Volkow rescanned their brains and found that they had begun to return to their pre-drug state. Good news, certainly, but only as far as it goes. The changes induced by addiction do not just involve one system, says Volkow. There are some areas in which the changes persist even after two years. One area of delayed rebound involves learning. Somehow, in chronic methamphetamine users, the ability to learn some new things remained effective after 14 months of abstinence. Does treatment push the brain back to normal? asks Joseph Fraschella, a former senior science advisor for NIDA and now vice president of research at Legacy Health, or does it push it back in different ways? If the kind of damage that lingers in an addicted person's learning abilities also hangs on in behavioral areas, this could explain why rehabilitation programs that rely on cognitive therapy, teaching new ways to think about the need for a substance and the consequences of using it, might not be effective, especially in the first weeks and months after getting clean. Therapy is a learning process, notes Vachi. We are trying to get addicts to change cognition and behavior at a time when they are least able to do so. One important discovery, evidence supports the 90-day rehabilitation model, which was stumbled upon by AA. New members are advised to attend a meeting a day for the first 90 days, and is a recommended duration of a stint in a drug treatment program. It turns out that this is just about how long it takes for the brain to reset itself and shake off the immediate influence of a drug. Researchers at Yale University have documented what they call the sleeper effect, a gradual re-engaging of proper decision-making and analytical functions in the brain's prefrontal cortex after an addict has abstained for at least 90 days. This work has led to research on cognitive enhancers, or compounds that may amplify connections in the prefrontal cortex to speed up the natural reversal. Such enhancement would give the higher regions of the brain a fighting chance against the amygdala, a more basal region that plays a role in priming the dopamine reward system when certain cues suggest imminent pleasure. Anything from the sight of white powder that looks like cocaine to spending time with friends you used to drink with. It's that conditioned reflex that unleashes a craving, and it's that phenomenon that was the purpose of my brain scans at McLean Hospital. In my early years, I would often drink even when I knew it was a terrible idea, and the urge was hardest to resist when I was with my drinking buddies, hearing the clink of glasses and bottles seeing others imbibe, and smelling the aroma of wine or beer. The researchers at McLean have invented a machine that wafts such odors directly into the nostrils of a subject undergoing an fMRI scan in order to see how the brain reacts. The reward circuitry in the brain of a newly recovering alcoholic should light up like a Christmas tree when stimulated by one of these alluring smells. I chose dark beer, my absolute favorite, from their impressive stock. But I hadn't gotten high for more than a quarter century. It was an open question how I would react to the scent of what gave me so much enjoyment back then. So after an interview with a staff psychiatrist to make sure I would be able to handle it if I experienced a craving, 
I was fitted with a tube that carried beer aroma from a vaporizer into my nose. I was then slid into the machine to inhale that still familiar odor while the fMRI did its work. Even if the smells triggered a strong desire to drink, I'd long ago learned ways to talk myself out of it or find someone to help me do so. Like the 90-day drying out period that turns out to parallel the brain's recovery cycle, such a strategy is in line with other new theories of addiction. Scientists say extinguishing urges is not a matter of getting the feelings to fade, but of helping the addict learn a new form of conditioning, one that allows the brain's cognitive power to shout down the amygdala and other lower regions. What has to happen for that cue to extinguish is not for the amygdala to become weaker, but for the frontal cortex to become stronger, says Voci. While such relearning has not been studied formally in humans, Voci believes it will work on the basis of studies involving, of all things, phobias. It turns out that phobias and drugs exploit the same struggle between high and low circuits in the brain. People placed in a virtual reality glass elevator and treated with the antibiotic D-cycloserine, originally used to treat tuberculosis, but now known to help quiet the amygdala, were better able to overcome their fear of heights than those without benefit of the drug. Says Voci, I never thought we would have drugs that affect cognition in such a specific way. Such surprises have even allowed experts to speculate whether addiction can ever be cured. The notion goes firmly against current beliefs. A rehabilitated addict is always in recovery because cured suggests that resuming drinking or smoking or shooting up is a safe possibility. But there are hints that a cure might not, in principle, be impossible. One study showed that tobacco smokers who suffered a stroke that damaged the insula a region of the brain involved in emotional gut instinct perceptions, no longer felt a desire for nicotine. That's exciting, but because the insula is so critical to other brain functions, perceiving danger, anticipating threats, damaging this area isn't something you would ever want to do intentionally. With so many of the brain's systems entangled with one another, it could prove impossible to adjust just one without throwing the others into imbalance. Nevertheless, says Volkow, addiction is a medical condition. We have to recognize that medications can reverse the pathology of the disease. We have to force ourselves to think about a cure, because if we don't, it will never happen. But she is quick to admit that just contemplating new ideas doesn't make them so. The brain functions that addiction commandeers may simply be so complex that sufferers, as 12-step recovery programs have emphasized for decades, never lose their vulnerability to their drug of choice. My brain barely lit up in response to the smell of beer inside the fMRI at McLean. This is actually valuable information for you as an individual, said Scott Lucas, director of the hospital's Brain Imaging Center and a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, who ran the tests. It means that your brain's sensitivity to beer cues has long passed. That's in keeping with my real-world experience. If someone has a beer at dinner, I don't feel a compulsion to leap across the table and grab it, or even to order one for myself. Does that mean I'm cured? Maybe, 
but it may also mean simply that it would take a much stronger trigger for me to fall prey to addiction again. Like, for example, downing a glass of beer. But the last thing I intend to do is put it to the test. I've seen too many others try it with horrifying results. There's a small column here titled, What Hooks Us? Addictions in America Change Over Time. Here's a look at what we're battling now. Alcohol. About 14.1 million people, or 5.6% of the population, are dependent on or abuse alcohol, and 13,000 more try it for the first time every day. Drugs. An estimated 8.1 million people are dependent on at least one drug. On average, 27,000 try them for the first time each day. Marijuana, prescription pain relievers, and prescription tranquilizers are the leading drugs of abuse. Tobacco. There are about 50.6 million users of tobacco products in the U.S., about 15.3% of men and 12.7% of women are cigarette smokers, with cigarette use lowest in western states and highest in the Midwest. While youth are smoking fewer cigarettes, 21% of high school students are now vaping. Caffeine. It's the most widely used mood-altering drug in the world and is now ingested by about 80-90% to of Americans primarily through soda and coffee. Food. Although food addiction is not a classifiable disorder, as many as 20% of the population may fit the criteria. Food addiction also has some overlap with binge eating disorder, which is classified. Gambling. Approximately 2.5 million people or 1% of the U.S. population, have a gambling disorder, wagering heedless of the consequences. In treatment populations, about half of those with a gambling disorder have suicidal ideation, and 17% have attempted suicide. Shopping. Research indicates that about 6% of the U.S. population are compulsive buyers and women are nine times as likely to be affected as men. Sex. Some 3 to 6 percent, or 7.4 million to 14.7 million of American adults, struggle with what has recently been classified as compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Online porn addiction has escalated in recent years. Lastly, we have the Internet with 90% of children and teens and 65% of adults playing online and video games regularly, DSM-5 includes online gaming disorder, not as a diagnosis, but as a condition warranting further research. There we have today's knowledge about addictions. Thank you for tuning in to SoundBody. Stay well, and please come back next week for more healthy living ideas.